from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And as you know, we love telling stories about the American dream, and many of those, well, they're business stories, because that's how the American dream is manifested by many Americans who want to own a little business of their own and grow it into something bigger. They are the real heart and soul of America providing purpose and livelihoods for millions across this great and good country. And today we bring you the story of investing legend, Leon Cooperman, 
because businesses, well, they need investors and capital to grow. And that is a part of this story, well, that we love to fill in for folks. Here's our own Joey Cortez with the story of Leon Cooperman. In 2015, Wall Street legend Leon Cooperman received the Horatio Alger Award. Joining the ranks of Rich DeVos, Buzz Aldrin, Hank Aaron, and many more Americans who exemplified great virtue and perseverance. Here's Leon giving his acceptance speech upon receiving the award. I'm proud to be joining the Horatia Alger Association of Distinguished Americans. This is a wonderful honor for me. I'm grateful to become part of an organization whose mission so closely matches what I believe. We live in a country where there are countless opportunities to succeed. We must support young people who recognize the need of a college education. This will benefit the individual scholarship recipients and will help our nation remain competitive in what has become a very small competitive world. My parents certainly recognized the importance of education. They were Polish immigrants and their lack of education limited their prospects. But they instilled in me a desire to do well in school um, and my education served me well in my financial career. But beyond education, I believe the best thing a young person can do is to pursue something they love. I like to quote Henry Ford, who said, the best way to make money in business is not to spend too much time thinking about how to make it. If you love what you're doing, the money will take care of itself. Hard work has always been an important factor in becoming successful. You know, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up and knows it must run faster than this fastest lion or will be killed. And every morning, a lion wakes up knowing it must outrun the slowest gazelle or starve to death. The lesson is that no matter whether you're a lion or gazelle, when the sun comes up, you better be running. And Leon has been running since his childhood. I had one teacher who told me I'd never amount to anything. <laughs> you know, I grew up in the South Bronx with four other guys. We were inseparable. School was a secondary consideration. Every day after school, was, depending upon the season, was basketball, stickball, football, baseball. Uh, I'm the only one still alive. There's a movie in the 60s called Ford Apache the Bronx, starring Paul Newman. Okay, it, uh, I grew up in Fort Apache. The opening scene of the movie is there are two kids on the roof of a six-story tenement building throwing a third kid off the roof, obviously killing him. I could have been that kid. I wasn't. You know, I grew up in a rough and tumble neighborhood, but I stayed in the straight and narrow. I stayed out of trouble. I had the right values due to my parents, and I was lucky. I got out of the ghetto. Well, I was very industrious. You know, I, I did uh, I did a lot of different jobs growing up. I fixed flat tires, which was a um, hard work. You know, because some of these trucks were coming with a flat, big tire you had to deal with. Then I packed uh, fruit in a fruit store. I, my first serious paying job was a usher at the Lowe's Paradise Theater in the Bronx, 55 cents an hour. But you know, I learned the benefit of hard work and getting money and having some degree of independence. My father came to America at the age of 13 as a plumber's apprentice, had no formal education at all, worked very hard. He actually died carrying a sink up a four-story tenement. Even though he was retired, he was doing somebody a favor. He shouldn't have been do doing it because he was retired due to a uh, heart condition. And he uh, had a heart attack and died, uh, you know, doing a favor for a friend, installing a sink down here in Florida. But uh, he emphasized the importance of education. And uh, P 
people ask me, what do I attribute my success to? I say it's hard work, it's luck, it's a certain amount of luck in life, and intuition. So they're most quizzical about the intuition part because the hard work and the luck is self-explanatory. What is the intuition? So back in the 60s, if you finished your major and minor in college in three years, you were allowed to account your first year of dental or medical school towards your fourth year of college to get a separate degree. So in the summer of 1963, I worked very hard to finish off my major. I took physical chemistry at the University of Pennsylvania. That ended my major, and I enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania Dental School. After eight days, everybody laughs about that, but after eight days, I was wondering if I was pushing myself in the direction that I was fully committed to. I had paid the tuition for a year. I took up uh, one of 100 spaces in the dental class. I paid my room and board for a year, all of which would be lost if I went back to undergraduate school to finish off my fourth year unencumbered by any decision. I call that intuition. Uh, I went to the dean of the dental school who was very tough on me, not unfair. His line was, you know, you deprived the 101st applicant of a dental education, which was frankly in retrospect bull because after eight days they can call somebody on the wait list and admit him, which I'm sure they did. I went to the West Bronx and I went to Hunter College, which is part of the City University of New York. And then I worked as a quality control engineer for Xerox Corporation for about a year, and then I decided to go back to school to get an MBA. Leaving dental school was a a very big thing, you know, you have to keep in mind, I lost the tuition for a year, I lost my room and board for a year. All my friends knew I was off at dental school. My father was walking around saying, my son, the dentist. I pissed him off, but good. When I went back, he didn't know what I was in store for. So he looked at that as a, not in a favorable light. So I'd say leaving dental school was a big decision. And the most important in my life was joining Goldman Sachs. And you're listening to Leon Cooperman tell the story of his upbringing, the South Bronx. Watch that movie with Paul Newman, and you won't believe what the South Bronx looked like back then. Doesn't look like it anymore. It may have been the toughest patch of real estate in America. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about this remarkable son of an immigrant story. Polish immigrants, so many millions here in this country. When we return here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we continue with Leon Cooperman's story here on Our American Stories. When we last left off, he ditched dental school. And then, well, let's just say the break of his life. He got a job at Goldman Sachs. Let's return to more of Leon's story. My career at Goldman, I hired him as a junior analyst, became a senior analyst very quickly. And then in, in 1982, I took on all the portfolio strategy work at the firm. 72, not 82. I had a very, very good career at Goldman. And for many years, I was advocating to Goldman that they should go into the money management business. 
and for many years, shows you how little influence I had, they said, Lee, you don't get it. We're of the view that brokers should do brokerage, money management do money management, don't compete with your customer. Because Goldman's traditional customer base was uh, institutional investors. And I said, open up your eyes and smell the roses. Merrill Lynch has got Merrill Lynch Asset Management. Kidda Peabody's got a Webster Asset Management. Uh, CSFB has CSFB Asset Management. You know, everybody's in the business. And uh, your clients will accept the fact that you're in the money management business as long as you compete in a level playing field. And they wouldn't do it. And then all of a sudden one day, Salomon Brothers, the firm's arch trading rival, announced that Bob Salomon Jr., who was a friend of mine, was leaving the research department. He was in the same position that I was. He was the partner in charge of research to start Salomon Brothers Asset Management. And Steve Friedman and Barb Rubin, uh, who at the time were the co-heads of the firm, came to me and said, you know, we made a mistake. We should have listened to you. Would you leave research and build us an asset management business? So I became the CEO of Goldman Sachs Asset Management. And I wanted to start a hedge fund as part of the asset management business. And they were reluctant to do it and they said no. And so I decided that I really wanted to invest my money differently. I didn't want to manage other people's money without my own money. So uh, when they turned down the ability to have a hedge fund, I decided to retire to start my own hedge fund. And it was a very difficult decision because at that time I was like the fifth highest percentage partner of the firm. Fairly senior, the firm was earning a couple billion dollars a year. I was making a lot of money. And you don't leave a job where you're making that kind of money for a startup venture very easily. And I, I was happy at Goldman, but uh, that was a big decision. It turned out to be a good decision because my first year was up 25% and the second year was up 70-odd percent. And then Goldman calls me up at the absolute worst time, 1993, after I was up 70-odd percent and probably made more money collectively than the entire management committee of Goldman Sachs in the aggregate. They came to me wanting to get into the hedge fund business, say we made a mistake not going in the hedge fund business, would you help us build the hedge fund practice? And I laughed and I said, sure. But you know, I say that with a big smile on my face. Goldman's a great firm, big success. You know, I just made a partner I mentioned before, they earned 40 million. I think today they probably earned 15, 20 billion, maybe more. By 2018, Leon's hedge fund, Omega Advisors, managed roughly $3.6 billion. That same year, Leon decided he wanted to focus on his charitable investments. So he turned his company into a family office to manage his own investments and charitable givings. And now, Mr. Cooperman, worth over $3.2 billion, is invested in giving it all away. You know, I've lived the American dream. You know, I started with nothing, made a lot of money through hard work, luck, and intuition. And I've taken a giving pledge with Warren Buffett, and I've also taken a giving pledge with Mike Levin, who has a comparable deal, but it's in the Jewish world. So I'm committed to giving away all my money, basically. Not half, but all my money. I discovered a long time ago there's only four things you could do with money when you think about it. The first thing you could do with money is you could pleasure yourself. You could buy airplanes, art, homes, baseball teams, football teams, basketball teams. I, don't, I never really had an interest in that. Second thing you do with money is uh, you can give it to your children. But I think if you have a lot of money, giving all your money to your kids is a mistake because you deprive them of any ability to self-achieve. 
So I've given my kids a rational sum of money, but didn't take away from them the incentive to work and achieve on their own. Plus, I didn't give my kids money until they were successful on their own. Third thing you can do with money is give it to the government, but only a fool gives the government money. You don't have to give them. You pay your taxes as a citizen, but you don't write them a check saying, here's an extra 100000 or something like that. And the fourth thing you can do with money is recycle back in society, try to make the world a better place. And that's the bulk of my uh, activities. I have a very large foundation, which I set up probably 35 years ago, and I put excess money into it, and I give away, I would say, not bragging, but maybe $25, $30 million a year at the charities. My biggest charity that I'm most interested in is something called the Koopman College Scholars, where I had an idea that I wanted to put some money aside to pay college tuition for uh, qualified youngsters in Essex County, New Jersey, that needed financial support. It's largely of color. We have about 500 kids that I'm paying the college tuition for. Uh, the deal was you got to show initiative, number one, and uh, enroll in a free three-week pre-college program designed by Franklin and Marshall. It basically uh, uh, tells you what to expect when you go to college. It prepares you. So you have it's a free deal. So uh, unless you enroll in that and show the initiative, you're not qualified for my program. Second, you have to be academically qualified. I'm very big on equal opportunity, not equal outcome. I want to teach people how to fish. I don't want to give them fish. And I have a board of 15 people that interview these kids and determine whether they're qualified for the program or not. Third, you have to have a financial need unmet by government. And fourth, you have to live in Essex County, New Jersey, which is where the program is based. And uh, I originally put 25 million dollars into that program, uh, fighting the odds, the, uh, the odds are not particularly favorable. 35% of Essex County kids, Nick Newark kids went to college, only 5% managed to graduate. And I told the people that I gave the money to that I'm not paying this kind of money for a 5% graduation rate. You show me a superior graduation rate and I'll basically uh, add to the money. And the first cohort just graduated we're five years into the program, we have a 75% uh, graduation rate um, in four years. We'll have a higher in six years. And so I gave another 25 million. So I have $50 million I set aside to provide. And it gives my family and me a great deal of pleasure. Having lived a long, successful, and charitable life, here's how Leon hopes to be remembered. Uh, my kids come home, you know. Uh, I uh, was very successful, I was very lucky, but I have, uh, I maintained my sense of values. You know, I have a 2002 automobile, I have two Hyundais, people in this community drive around with Teslas and Bentleys and Rolls Royces, and I'd rather give away the money to people that need it, rather than spend it on automobiles. So I think I have the right sense of values, I was a good friend, and I treated people properly. Aside from giving away all his wealth, Leon's legacy will live on through his grandchildren, a legacy that brings tears to his eyes. 23, 20, and 11. Uh, the 11-year-old 11 is, you know, it's too early to tell how he turns out, but the 23-year-old, um, exceptional, very charitable, very concerned about others. Uh, I quote her, uh, she basically posed some questions 
and I'll give it to you. Uh, says, if I'm not for myself, then who will be for me? If I'm not for others, then what have I? And if not now, when? Says Rabbi Hillel. She answers, here you go. If you are not for others, no one will be for you. If you are for others, then others will be for you. You will show others how to be more than only themselves. They will therefore be for you. The time is always now. It's now or never. Sorry for being a little sentimental. It's uh, my granddaughter, Courtney. The greatest pleasure I get now is seeing my kids and my grandchildren grow up purposely and in good health. And not the voice one would expect of an investing legend, but it's quite common and ordinary, actually. The story of a great investor, the son of immigrants, a Polish immigrant, a hardworking dad, a plumber. The story of Leon Cooperman, here on Our American Stories. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors in our lives, big ones and small ones. If we keep them bottled up, boy, that can be a real problem. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. I know people who've profoundly benefited from therapy, learning everything from coping skills to setting boundaries in their life. You don't have to have experienced major trauma to benefit from therapy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's safe. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OAS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash OAS. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash OAS. And we continue with our American stories. While in modern times we often view prohibition as a failure and even a misstep by fanatics, it's a more complicated tale. Today, Travis Spengenberg, creative and production manager for the American Prohibition Museum in Savannah, Georgia, tells us the complicated story behind prohibition, as well as humanizing it, all through the story of Carrie Nation. And she was famous for smashing illegal saloons up with an axe. From the streets of Savannah, here's Travis. It's so easy to approach history really academically, even with things I'm very interested in, like U.S. presidents. And it's very easy to say, well, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy was the 35th president. He served from then to then until his assassination. But um, I always got really into, kind of hooked by the human stories behind people. I just read the other day, I do a series on our Facebook called Presidential Drinking, where I look into the drinking habits of the presidents. And, you know, all your life you hear Franklin Pierce precipitated Civil War. Uh, he kind of failed to, th- these were his policy failures, regarded as one of our worst presidents. But then you look at the man was a heavy drinker, uh, alcoholic. He, on the way to Washington to get inaugurated, uh, he, he gets in a train accident. Uh, his son is the only uh, casualty from his family. His wife and him are present. They see their little boy decapitated. And then he has to go be president, already having a drinking problem, and he essentially drinks himself to death. So, um, you know, we still can't absolve him of what the presidency, uh, what his failures in the presidency were, but it really fits with what we do in the museum when you start to realize, oh, there were real human cost problems driving this man into this and maybe he shouldn't have been it was the worst possible time in his life to be president so those human stories behind history so i've always tried to look deeper and see what what is the story we're not telling it's not the best um you know it doesn't give you the widest scale of of information from just a a, like an academic history perspective but as a a storyteller as somebody interested in, in in creation and uh, uh, enlightening stuff. I think it's the stuff that connects to people the best. When I do guided tours of the museum, which is when I, I take people f- kind of from the beginning of the movement through prohibition, through the end of it, the first thing I have to lay down is don't view this through your modern drinking. This is even even looking at alcoholism as a problem. We still have problems with it today, but there's an entire infrastructure and understanding of alcoholism and a way to get people help. Back then, you were basically on your own. If you were a drunk, it was your own moral failing and treatment 
there were a few thinkers who were starting to go, hey, maybe this is something that we need to treat instead of punish them for. Um, some of the early temperance propaganda was specifically like, lock out the saloon keepers, lock them up, but don't lock up the drunks. They can be productive members of society if not for this negative influence. So uh, the Industrial Revolution essentially, essentially creates a situation where a lot of alcohol is you're able to make it easier, you're able to move it around easier, people are just able to acquire stronger liquor easier. Up until that point, it's easiest to just make your own beers, your own ciders, um, but the strong stuff gets really easy. And uh, 1830, by 1830, the average American is drinking seven gallons of pure alcohol a year. That amounts to about 90 bottles of whiskey across the, uh, uh, the entire year. That's the average American. That's not the average American drinker. So there's plenty of teetotalers, uh, totally sober people that never drink anything, factored into that number, skewing it downwards. The average American drinker is drinking more than that, maybe four or five bottles of whiskey a week. And so you basically have this blind drunk population of men who are supposed to be the sole breadwinner. Not only are they spending all their money on this alcohol, but they're also spending their health. And when they die, you have a whole family network that was depending on them. You know, best case scenario, he had plenty of sons that are older that can take his place. But if he's just got a bunch of girls or a bunch of young kids and his wife, they're done for. Women have no way to get their own income that equals the men that they've just lost. Uh, they have no property, they can't divorce their husbands, and they can't vote to change how any of it works. Um, so at a certain point, the only option is a massive cultural movement to change the way America views alcohol. And uh, you know, we all regard prohibition as, as, as a kind of a failure today. There are things that did well. It did, it did eliminate, it did change our drinking culture uh, for the better, I think. But um, I think generally, historically, it's seen as a failure. And people tend to look at the temperance movement and deride them and scold them and condescend to them for doing it, for making it happen. And, and while I agree that maybe it wasn't the right solution, there was a problem worth solving. And at that point, I ask you, what, what solution is there? What solution other than getting rid of the nefarious influence is there? Uh, they had tried moderation laws. They had tried laws to kind of uh, limit serving. But the power of the saloon was just so much so that people were drinking themselves regardless. Uh, so at a certain point, um, I understand them. You know, you, you don't have to condone every bit of the temperance movement, um, but I think it, it's unfair to say, ah, prohibition ruined certain parts of the country and it's all these ladies' fault. Faced with the destruction of their family, what else? I am a, I am a, a, a noted Carry Nation apologist. That is one of my strongest missions when I'm working the floor, when I'm telling stories in the museum, is to get, I always say there's three stages of learning about Carrie Nation. First, you think she's a nutcase because she's a woman with a hatchet destroying bars. It seems insane. The second, you understand her even if you don't condone her. And the third, you admire her and I'm way past admiration at this point. Um, but really, it's, you know, because at, at first glance, it's a woman running into bars that you think are perfectly legal. You know, if you're just learning about her, it seems like they're perfectly legal and she's smashing them up and she's insane and she's ruining people's property. It's, it's vandalism. But then you learn that Kansas, where she was doing most of her smashing, had been dry for 20 years before she finally snapped off. From 1881 to 1948, it was illegal to sell alcohol in Kansas, 67 years. And then she helped get this stuff passed. She was, uh, uh, um, instrumental in the movement. I'm not sure if she was in Kansas yet when it passed, but basically the, her like-minded friends had gotten this, had worked very hard to get the Constitution of Kansas changed to include prohibition. Good, work is done. 19 years go by and there's still bars everywhere operating with impunity. Uh, the first one she smashes up is owned by the brother of her county sheriff. 
So it's definitely this situation where, yeah, there's laws on the books, but nobody's enforcing it. Well, if they're not gonna do the job, who is? Any attempt to paint Carrie as this crazy person, you look at her, everything she did was completely rational. She wasn't indiscriminate. She wasn't smashing up bars that were obeying the law. She was destroying bars that were in dry areas. She was methodical, she was smart, she was funny, she knew how to control a crowd. She'd get this huge army. By the time she marched on Topeka in uh, the early parts of her smashings, um, she had, a, it was reported as 2,000 people were marching in the streets of the capital of Kansas, protesting. Not all smashing bars, but they were basically following her around. Nobody gets hurt. She controls this entire army. They're all on her side. And then um, they take her to jail, finally, because they're sick of her. <laughs> wreaking havoc. They take her to jail, she goes to jail, and immediately fights start breaking out and, and a guy shot and killed um, without her influence around. Uh, so she was this very smart, everybody who ever, this is kind of what changed me on her, is like, um, you know, we can all can look back and go, ah, this crazy woman. But as soon as you look at anything anybody who actually knew her said about her, they never said she was unhinged. They talked about her being uh, motherly and funny and kind. Uh, she was kind to a fault. She'd give you the shirt off her back. Um, a lot of the money that she was making off of her celebrity was put right back into helping people from a temperance perspective. And just, um, she wanted uh, her last uh, uh, big venture in life. She uh, purchased a home in Eureka Springs, Arkansas called, um, she named it Hatchet Hall. And uh, it was, her dream was to make it into a, uh, like a boarding house with a shelter uh, for uh, specifically abused women, widows of alcoholics, um, a, a church on staff, a school where she could teach kids. So essentially she wanted this entire complex to help communities uh, and she was throwing all her own money at that. And you're listening to Travis Spangenberg tell the story of Carrie Nation and the story of prohibition. And when we come back, more from this passionate man and by the way, he also happens to be the creative and production manager for the American Prohibition Museum in Savannah, Georgia. And we love taking you to these kinds of museums across this great country. More on the story of Prohibition and Carry Nation here on Our American Story. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 
That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of prohibition as told by Travis Spengenberg, creative and production manager at the American Prohibition Museum. And that's in Savannah if you're ever in that part of Georgia. Pay Travis a visit. Travis was just telling us about the notorious prohibitionist, Carrie Nation, a woman famous for smashing illegal saloons up with an axe. We're back to Travis on the streets of Savannah, Georgia, to tell us more of the story. Uh, the biggest way I can get people on her side, so to speak, is you look into her past. She fell in love young. Uh, she was 20, 20, 21 years old. She fell in love with a named, uh, man named Dr. Gloyd. She fell in love with him. And uh, it was this storybook romance against the wishes of her parents. They had somebody else in mind for her to marry. She does it anyway and quickly finds out that he's got a problem with alcohol. Uh, over the course of their year or so of being married, she gets pregnant. Uh, but before the kid's even born, uh, she, it's clear to her that this isn't sustainable. She leaves him, uh, goes back to live with her parents, and when she finally decides to separate from him, him entirely, she goes back to get her things, and he says, he looks her in the eye and says, pet, if you leave me, I'll be a dead man in six months. She left. She, he was right. Almost six months to her leaving him, he died, drank himself to death. Uh, Charlene, her daughter, was born. Uh, throughout Charlene's life, she had a whole host of uh, physical and mental illnesses. Uh, Carrie blamed herself for procreating with a drunkard. She said uh, that it was hereditary, that she essentially um, was the, uh, the quote is, 
Uh, Charlene was the product of a drunken father and a distracted mother. That she wasn't able to properly parent her because she was grieving and uh, she blamed herself. Uh, she spent the next years of her life going through their old love letters and reading and thinking about what could have been. She even named her daughter Charlene after her, her husband Charlie. And uh, was it's deeply sad. And she eventually marries David Nation, not out of love. She had that once, she had her chance at that, she lost it. She marries David Nation because a woman can't get by in Frontier, Kansas on teaching jobs and on hotel jobs. She doesn't like him. She says in her autobiography, I shall speak very little of my time with Mr. Nation. Uh, he and I agreed on few things. Uh, she's very short about it. Uh, she calls him at times uh, like bad at his faith, like not really good at things. Um, she boasts herself as a better preacher than him. Um, she talks about how bad they were at ranching. They try to start a farm in Texas. They move back to, to Kansas and she's in this unhappy marriage. He belittles her. When she starts having religi religious visions, he, he, he basically mocks her, says, and she's, you know, by the time she starts smashing up bars, she's embraced this. She, but in 1880 or so, when it starts, 20 years prior, she, she hears this voice in her head and it scares her and she goes to her husband for comfort and he goes, oh, what's God saying to you now, Carrie? Ah, making fun of her. And eventually um, he divorces her. He divorces her in 1901, about a year into her bar smashings. Uh, and at that point, she's making all this money on the road doing these sermons uh, in the temperance movement. And her reaction is basically, see you later. Fine. She got what she needed out of him. So she had this, this chance at, at a love life, at a, at a real fulfilling marriage that was ruined by drinking. And then she spent, so he dies in the late 1870s. He died, she spends 20 years musing on what could have been and who took it from them. The saloon and the... the, the um, uh, what do you call them? The, uh, she blamed uh, Mason Lodge. He would go off to the Mason Lodge and just get blitz drunk. Saloons didn't have a... There was no incentive to stop serving somebody. There were no laws in the books where you would get in trouble for anything they did or anything that happened to them because of what they drank. So you just served them until they were out of money or they, they, they couldn't literally ingest it anymore. Um, so saloons were making a boatload of money all at the expense of the local citizens. And they knew what they were doing and they made, um, they made themselves the center of communities. You could get your mail at the saloon, you could vote at the saloon, you could sleep in the saloons. So essentially they made men come there not, it, they weren't just targeting men who were coming in expressly for a drink. That would almost be fine if it was the case where it's like, okay, these guys were coming for drink and they gave them drink. They may be coming to pick up their mail and they get tempted into the bar or into the brothel section of some saloons. And they were seen as a real societal ill by this temper. It wasn't just the alcohol problem. That was the worst thing. Uh, but it was the control that they had and what they did with that control in the eyes of the temperance movement. It's complicated, it, you know, I'm a drink. I, I drink cocktails, like I'm gonna go home and make one today. But, um, and I get it, but I, I live in 2021. I get to be a guy who, if I did develop a problem, I have people who would support me. I have methods to get better. Um, I have disposable income. Um, people, you can't view it as you are today and as you drink today and the problems that you have. You have to view it through history. Is history happens when it happened? I may very well have voted for prohibition. You know, I wouldn't today, but you know, 1915. 
if I knew a bunch of men in my community who had been ruined by it, if I watch women uh, struggle, and, and, and I don't want to heap too bad on the men for, for uh, becoming drunks like it was all their choice, they were, they'd been off to any messes of wars. We'd all just been through the Civil War, um, economic panics, economic problems, um, back-breaking factory jobs. You know, when I talk about uh, prohibition as a complex issue, um, there's no heroes here, there's no villains. Um, uh, for every good thing that the temperance people went after, they, they got th crazy things done. Labor laws. They got, um, they got the age of consent raised to 16 from 10. They were, they, were, they were legitimately honest about protecting the people that they wanted to protect. However, it also meant throwing other people down the bus. And in the late 19th century, it's Italians and it's Germans and it's the Irish coming to town. And it's really easy for the temperance people to go, oh, look, they're bringing all their whiskey and their wines and their beers, and they're going to fundamentally change. You think the intemperance problem is bad now? Imagine what it's going to be like when all these guys show up. So we need to get to Ellis Island, we need to Americanize them as soon as they come in, get them to give up these drinking habits, and then, yeah, World War... Prohibition was already, uh, the work was already being done in that, by the time we entered World War I, that I think it probably would have happened anyway. But that is the last home run in the game. That is, uh, that's a silver platter. All these Germans that they'd spent decades demonizing, and that's what it is, they demonized them, they suddenly were in a war with them, and it's really easy to say, oh, well, you, if you give your money to the brewers, they're gonna send it home to their family, and they're going to uh, use it to kill your sons, your, your, your uncles, your brothers, your dads. Um, and it didn't matter that these American, uh, German-American brewers like Adolphus Busch were fiercely American, especially in their capitalism. They were, they were real innovators, and they were donating to American causes. They were building infrastructure in American society. They were uh, innovating new technology. Uh, they had definitely been paying their, uh, their way in this country. It didn't matter. It, it, their names were Bush and Pabst and all these German names, and it was really easy to say, hey, look, they will, they will ultimately, uh, they will side with Germany every time, despite there being not really any evidence. You know, so much gets made of the gangsters killing each other, uh, the, the poisoned alcohol, the racism of it all, um, all definitely, you know, you can't tell this, to tell the story without all that would be nonsense. But um, it is very easy to lose sight of what changed about culture. You know, women get the right to vote right at the beginning of Prohibition, less than seven months in. Seven months into Prohibition, women get the right to vote, and suddenly it's like a switch being flipped. Life changes for women overnight. Um, so women become journalists and lawyers, and they're working in speakeasies. You know, this whole thing started, like we talked about, because women couldn't contribute to their household income. Now they're lawyers, now they're journalists. They work in speakeasies as bartenders, as, as um, uh, shaker girls, as waitresses, as performers. Um, not to mention black performers in America finally have a time where they can say, oh, we work for ourselves. You know, back in the Jim Crow era, they, they were basically carted around and made to perform for people the things that uh, uh, white people told them to. During Prohibition, these jazz performers, one, get to create their own genre that's born out of African-American influences and traditions, and they get to perform it themselves, they get to write their own music, and they get to tell club promoters, I'm not playing for your segregated clubs anymore. This is people like Bessie Smith and Josephine Baker, Louis Armstrong, uh, King Oliver. Duke Ellington does play for the segregated club. Um, but um, he's making a bunch of money as his own band leader. He is the most famous band leader in America at the time. Uh, Bessie Smith has her own private train car when she travels. And essentially, they can muscle promoters around rather than the other way around and say, oh, okay, you want me in your club? 
integrate it. And if they don't do it, they don't get to perform and they don't get all those ticket sales. And a lot of club promoters, they immediately bow. And, and the music is so good. So yeah, it's this wild time where, where I, I like to say that it is freer for more Americans than any decade in American history prior. And actually for several decades after, a lot of it tightens up after the 30s, you know, through the Great Depression, through World War II. But it is a time where you start to see those glimmers of, of, of people getting to have their own influence in society and their own say about who they are and what they do and what they don't do. And a special thanks to Robbie for his work on the story, and a special thanks to Travis Spangenberg. Travis is the creative and production manager for the American Prohibition Museum in Savannah, Georgia. And by the way, go to Our American Stories on the website and listen to our Duke Ellington story. That story is available on OurAmericanStories.com. The story of Prohibition and the people behind the movement, including Carrie Nation, here on Our American Stories. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.